The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Come on back, take a seat, take a seat. Uh, We praise God for what he's doing through our church plant on the east side and All Saints Church. Um, Also, just wanted to uh, let you know, um, you probably saw our administrative assistant, Angie Tolfa, up here. And I have been fielding questions, so has she. Is Angie still going to work at Jacob's Well Church? Like, we don't care if Pastor Chad goes, or if Pastor Dan goes, or if anybody else goes. But is she still working at church? Yes, she is. And uh, I'm glad you recognize who runs this place, because uh, I told her if she ever has to quit, she has to give us like six months notice so she can train the next person. So uh, Angie will still be working here and running the church, um, but is going to be a part of our Uh, daughter church on the east side of Green Bay. So if you would please open up to Romans chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. It's page 943 in the Red Bible, page 1125 in the large print blue Bible, and page 1125 in the children's Bible. Romans chapter 7, uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. This is God's word, Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress as she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray. Lord, as we dig into your word, 
We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer, when we go over to Trisha's parents' lake house, one of my favorite things to do early in the morning, before all the boats are out, is to take out one of her parents' blue kayaks. And I love to take one of my children, put him on my lap, and paddle down this little waterway that's off of the major lake, and there's little turtles that, that hop off logs, and we see cool birds and things like that. Well, one morning, we were paddling back to the lake house, and it started to sprinkle. And that sprinkle turned into a rain, and then that rain turned into a downpour. And so I'm paddling back to the lake house as fast as I can. And we finally get back to the lake house, and instead of taking the kayak out of the lake and putting it up on the kayak holder, I, I push it down and push it underneath the, the, uh, the dock, uh, hoping that it will stay there. Well, I go inside, and in a couple hours, I come back, and you can guess what happened, right? There's no kayak there, no blue kayak. And so I go searching for this blue kayak everywhere, looking for it. And I can't find it, and so I come back, and I say, I can't find the blue kayak. So my wife goes everywhere looking for this blue kayak. She can't find it. So then the whole family loads up on the boat, and we drive around the entire huge, massive lake looking for this blue kayak to no avail. And so now it's become kind of this joke in our house. We'll be driving around town, and my little son, Cooper, will say, I think I see the blue kayak, Dad. When I came back to the dock and I saw that kayak was gone, my first inclination was to blame others. To say, you know, it's the person that operates the water levels of the lake. Somebody reduced the water levels that let the kayak slip out. It's their fault, right? Or it's my kid's fault. If they weren't so, you know, in the way, I would have paddled back faster. Or, you know, it's, it's my in-law's fault. If they put a rope on the kayak, then I could have looped it onto the dock. Or, you know, if there's some way I could have blamed it on my wife, I'm sure I would have. Um, of course, I never said any of these things out loud. I've learned better. But this is where my heart goes right away. And, and this is just one instance. It actually happens every single day. I mean, if I stub my toe on the sidewalk, I'll be like, who put a sidewalk here? Like, what were they thinking? You know? Do you, do, you ever, do you ever do that? Do you ever shift blame in your heart? Like, you know, the first thing you think of when you make a mistake is, is why did so-and-so do this? It's their fault, right? Or, or maybe, maybe if you struggle with a sin, you somehow find a way to blame it on other people. Like, if you're just crabby and mean, right? It's, it's my spouse's fault, right? Or it's my kid's fault, or it's my parents' fault, or, or whatever it might be, right? Let me ask you this. Why? I'm, I'm working under the assumption that we all struggle with this, okay? That's my assumption. That everybody has this propensity to try to justify their actions by blaming someone else. Why do we do that as people? Why is our natural inclination to blame someone else? And I think this is the reason. Because all of us long to be righteous. All of us justify our failings and put our unrighteousness on somebody else. We blame someone else so that we can exalt our own righteousness. We all long to be righteous, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. People long to be righteous. They long to be viewed as righteous. Why do you think people love tabloids so much? Why do they love to hear when, 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 when famous people fail? Because they're as we put out their righteousness candle, our righteousness candle shines a little brighter, right? 
we all long to be righteous. God put this longing inside of us. You know, as we've worked through the first six chapters of Romans, Paul has really been answering one question. And it's this question. How can I be righteous before God? How can I be righteous before God? This is the question that every single person is asking, whether they admit it or not. How can I be righteous before God? And Paul has, 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 has responded to this question from many vantage points, with many illustrations, with many big words that we've learned. But today he's going he's gonna to answer this question through the lens of the law, okay? Now, what the law is, is the law is the morals, the moral law that God has given to his people in the Old Testament. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Most of you are are probably familiar with what the Ten Commandments are, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Do not create uh, graven images, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Those types of things, right? This is God's moral law. And so Paul is going to answer this question, how how can we be righteous before God? By looking through this lens of the law. And as we study today's passage, what I think we will find is sweet relief for our soul because it will show us how we can achieve the righteousness our soul longs for but that we could never attain. And it will show us this by looking at the law and through the law showing us three things. First is our need for righteousness. Second is our means to righteousness. And finally, our fruit of righteousness. First, our need for righteousness. To the Jews, to one degree or another, uh, they had this relationship with the law in which they believed that their, their standing before God was based on their, on their obedience to the law. Paul knows this because Paul was a Jew. He was a Jew of Jews. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in their own efforts, and their own religiosity, he says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he says this, as to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were the strictest sect of Judaism when it came to the law. And he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And then I never saw this quite in the same light, but Paul then says this, which is astounding. He says, as to righteousness under the law, The two words we're using today, righteousness, law. As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. Blameless. In Paul's own estimation, as he was seeking God through through obeying the law, he considered himself blameless. He considered himself a good person. And so he's writing to the Jews, and he says, you think you're a good enough Jew when it comes to the law, but you know what? I out-Jewed you. I was a better Jew than you were. And so it gives him this baseline to speak to the Jews that love and appreciate the law, but probably focused on it too much. You see, the Jews used the law as a measuring stick for their righteousness before God. But in today's passage, Paul is going to tell us that the law actually does the opposite of that. The law does not show us our righteousness, but it actually reveals our unrighteousness. Look at verse 7 with me. Second part. Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Here's how tainted and how corrupt our nature is. We are so sinful that it's not only that we cannot do what is right, we don't even know what is right. 
We don't even know what is wrong. We don't know what's sinful. We don't know what is righteous. And Paul is saying, the law reveals to me what sin is. I didn't even know what sin was until the law told me what sin was. Verse 10, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, remember that phrase, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What does Paul mean when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? It doesn't mean that he was spiritually alive until the law came. Well, it can't mean that because if you look at the rest of the book of Romans, it says the exact opposite. But what it means is that in Paul's own deluded uh, understanding, he believed himself to be spiritually alive before God. That was his own estimation, but it was a wrong estimation. Paul thought that he was righteous before God, that he was good enough for God. Or as he says in Philippians 3, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This was Paul's self-perception that he was good enough for God, but it was a wrong perception. Maybe you're here today and you think the same thing. Maybe you say, you know what, I am accepted before God. God loves me. God is going to welcome me into heaven because I am a good person. I'm not a perfect person, you know, but my good outweighs my bad, and so God is going to let me into heaven. But as we look in verse 9, Paul says, when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, this is such an interesting phrase that Paul would say, when the commandment came. What does that mean? Because Paul, from a very young age, who grew up in a Jewish household, would have had the Ten Commandments memorized. He would have known the law. So what does it mean that the law came to him? Well, it doesn't mean when he first intellectually memorized it, but when he first understood the intent of it and the depth of his heart. When Paul's memory of these commandments came home to him. When Paul finally understood the depth of the law, and then the death of his sin. When he understood the heart of the law. And then the sin in his heart. You see it's very interesting that out of all the ten commandments. Paul chooses the last commandment. Which is thou shalt not covet. Why was that the commandment that slayed Paul? Why was that the commandment that, that undid Paul? That brought death into his life? Well I think it's for this reason. You see if you look at the first nine commandments. You can take all of those on an external and superficial basis, right? Like, have you murdered anyone? Nope, I haven't murdered anyone today, right? I'm doing okay. Have you stolen anything? Well, not really anything important, right? And so you can do all these externally. I haven't done these things externally, right? Although we know they're supposed to be applied internally, as Jesus did. We'll talk about that. But when you get to the 10th commandment, there's no way to to take it superficially. There's no way to take it as something merely external. When, When God says, you shall not covet... That goes straight to the heart, right? Do you understand that? And so when Paul, when the the law comes home to Paul, when he understands that it's directed to the heart, that when God says you should not murder, that you should not even hate someone in your heart, when Paul understands that it goes down to the heart, it slays him. It reveals death in him. In verse 9 he says, sin came alive and I died. Has this happened for you? Has the law revealed the death of your sin to you? Have you recognized its internal demands? Again, that we should not just physically murder someone, but that we shouldn't even hate someone in our heart. That we should not physically commit adultery, but we also should not lust in our heart. 
that we should not physically create idols out of wood or, or metal or whatever that might be and worship them, but we should not create idols in our heart. Has God's law come home to you? Has it revealed your sinfulness and your unrighteousness? Has your son sin come alive to you? Verse 12, Paul continues. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what, through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul is reminding us that there is nothing wrong with the law. In fact, God's law is holy and righteous and perfect and good. And because of that, it reveals our unrighteousness. This past week, I was reading about an x-ray pipeline crawler. It's this long machine that they send into pipelines, like oil pipelines, and it has wheels on, and it goes through the pipeline, and it takes an x-ray of the pipeline. And as it goes through and it x-rays the pipeline, what it does is it exposes all of the weaknesses, all of the imperfections in the pipeline and the welds and things of that sort so they can go back and fix it. In the same way, Paul is saying that the problem is not with the law, the problem is with you. It's with your sin. What the law does is the law x-rays your heart. And as it x-rays your heart, it reveals all of the imperfections, all of the sin that is going on inside of it. Think of it like an answer key to a math test, right? So if you have a student's test before you, a math test, you have the teacher's answer key. When you're grading that student's math test, the perfection of this, of this, of this answer key reveals the imperfections of the test. There's, there's nothing wrong with the answer key. As a matter of fact, it's perfect. And because it is perfect, it shows the imperfection in the test of the student. And so the law exposes our imperfections, not because it's bad, but because it's good and because it's perfect. But here's the thing. Paul says that the law not only reveals our unrighteousness, it actually arouses our unrighteousness. Look in verse 5 with me. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This word aroused means to bring to life or to stimulate the different members of your body towards sin. Paul is saying that our hearts are so bent on sinning, so bent on rebelling, that when we hear the law, which is right and perfect, good, it just spurs us to sin all the more. You know, it's funny because when we were meeting back at the old middle school in Bayview, uh, we used to have these ropes and we would rope off the back rows because we wanted people to sit down towards the front and, and be closer together. People didn't care about the ropes, right? They're like, oh, there's a rope. That must be for somebody else, right? And they step over it. And I'm like, maybe we need to put the ropes at the front of the church so everybody moves forward, right? It's kind of like when you tell your kids, you cannot eat broccoli, right? Why do you tell them that? Because you know if you tell them you can't eat broccoli, they're going to be like, oh, I really want to eat broccoli. See, the law spurs us to sin more. It provokes us. Verse 8, he says, but sin, season and opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, caused in me, worked in me all kinds of covetousness. The law reveals how rebellious we are because it leads us to sin all the more simply for the sake of rebelling. Probably one of the most famous examples is from St. Augustine in his confession. He talks about when he was a youth, he was hanging out with friends, and they went into a neighbor's uh, property to go and steal pears. 
And reflecting back on that, he said, why was it that I went and stole pears? Was it because the pears were so good to eat? He says, no, I had better pears in my own yard. He says, was it because I was hungry? He's like, no, I wasn't hungry. And so he said, why was it that I went and stole pears? And then he says this, he says, I only picked them so that I might steal. I love nothing in it except the thieving. He's saying that his desire to steal was awakened by the prohibition. The law is good and perfect and wonderful. And because of it, it arouses our sinfulness and our unrighteousness. And so this puts us in an impossible situation. All of us as humans long to be righteous. Righteous before ourselves, righteous before others, righteous before God. But the good law that God has given not only reveals our unrighteousness, but actually provokes us to unrighteousness. And so the question is, how do we become righteous? If we long for righteousness and God's laws, God's commands, which is perfectly righteous, provokes us and shows us our unrighteousness, how do we become righteous before God? And Paul is going to give us two answers. If you want to get righteous before God, number one, you have to get remarried. And number two, you have to die. All right, let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. All right, let's talk about that a little bit. Both of these illustrations are very helpful, but we have to be careful not to overapply them, all right? First, righteousness by means of remarriage. Verse 2 and 3. Read along with me. It says, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Simply put, Paul is saying that each and every one of us is married to a means of gaining righteousness. And one of the means that people are married to is a means of morality, of obedience to the law, and it's through this means that we are married to that we seek to attain righteousness. But when we die to that means of righteousness, then we are married to another means. And that other means is through Jesus Christ. Now all of us start being married to the first means of righteousness. We are, we are married to the law as, as a way of gaining God's favor. But as we've seen earlier, the law merely reveals how unrighteous we are. And so God gives us another way to be righteous before him, to be married to the righteous one. Now, as we look at the law again, the law is not bad. The law is great. It is perfect for what it's intended for. But the law, if you are married to that as a means of salvation, was never intended to be a means of salvation. It was never intended to be a means of righteousness. Trying to make yourself righteous before God through obeying the law is like trying to nail a hammer, a nail, sorry, hammer a nail into the wall with jello, okay? Jello is great, it's good, it's yummy. But it was never intended to hammer in a nail, right? The law was never intended to make you righteous before God. That was never its purpose. And so as we long to be righteous, as we are married to the law, we look to another groom. When our first groom dies, our, our, our means of righteousness through the law, as that is put to death, we are bound to another, to a new husband who loves us, who delights in us, and who gives us his righteousness. And that new husband is Jesus Christ. This is expressed so beautifully in Ephesians 5. 
Many of you are probably familiar with it. But Paul says this in Ephesians 5. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, righteous, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, if you trust in Christ to be your righteous, you are no longer married, no longer united, no longer bound to the law, to be righteous before God. You no longer have to prove yourself to God because your righteousness does not come through your performance, but it comes through your greater groom, Jesus Christ. Christ is our righteous one. And when we marry him, he gives us his righteousness. And so the first way we become righteous before God is by getting remarried to Jesus Christ. The second way is by dying with Jesus. Verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Again, this is one of those illustrations we can't take too far, but, but when you die, you are no longer under the laws of the land, right? When you lay in the grave, you're not going to get any more speeding tickets, right? Uh, you're not going to get a ticket for jaywalking. You're not going to get a ticket for, for trespassing because the law no longer applies to you if you're dead. All right, that's all that Paul's saying. Verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And who has been raised from the dead? Jesus has been raised from the dead. The image Paul's laying out here is that we are so united to Jesus Christ that when he died, our old self died with him. Our old self that was married to the law died with Jesus. Our old self that was mastered by sin and condemned to hell died with Jesus. You see, at the cross, for all who trust in Christ, Christ took on our law-breaking. He took on our unrighteousness. He took on our judgment and paid for it in full. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteous record. Galatians 2.20, which is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, says this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He died for no reason if you could gain righteousness through the law. But Christ died that we might be saved by grace through faith and his righteousness might be credited to us. So just to recap, to get the righteousness all of our souls long for. The law must die as a means of gaining righteousness to all of us. And we must be remarried to Jesus, the righteous one who gives us his righteousness. But we also must die to our own efforts to free us from the law that we might rely wholly and completely on Jesus alone. And so the law exposes our need for righteousness. Jesus is the means of our righteousness. Finally, we see the fruit of our righteousness. You know, when we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we are given the record of Christ's righteousness. 
It's not that God simply looks at you as if though you had never sinned. It goes beyond that. God looks at you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I think all of us know that even though we are given that righteous record of Christ, that our conduct doesn't match that, does it? We don't become perfectly righteous in all of our dealings. But what happens is when we start this journey, when we're given Christ's righteousness throughout the rest of our life, throughout the rest of this marriage with Jesus, God is conforming us into the image of Christ. He's making us more like our righteousness that we have already been declared. And so here we see Paul writes about the fruit of our righteousness, our fruit for God. Look at verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And then focus on this part. In order that we may bear fruit for God. This image of bearing fruit takes us back to the marriage illustration. You see, marriage is the vehicle through which we bear children. If you remember the creation mandate, God comes to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fruit is, is bearing uh, children, bearing offspring. And what we're told in this passage is that we should bear the fruit of righteousness. The old husband of the law was impotent to produce any righteousness within us. But our new husband, Jesus Christ, has the power to give us righteousness, the power to arouse righteousness within us. Friends, this means that we cannot come to Christ and not be changed. That when we start a relationship with Jesus, it will change who we are. It will change our thoughts. It will change our our motivations. It will change our actions. Not, Not all at once, but slowly and meticulously, but also surely we will be conformed into the righteousness that God has already given to us in Jesus Christ. We will become more and more like our heavenly husband. Have you ever heard the phrase or maybe seen it in truth that you become more like the person that you marry every year? Right? You ever seen someone who's been married, this couple that's been married like 50 years? Right? They're, they're still definitely unique individual people, but, but suddenly they both like eating dinner at 4 p.m., right? And, and they get in the car for church and they're like, oh, we're wearing the same sweater and uh, they have the same opinions, you know, some of the same views. They see the world the same way because that's what marriage does, right? It makes us more like the one that we are united to. We're still different, but we come more like the one that we're married to. In the same way, the longer that you are married to Jesus, the more you become like him. The more you will have his heart, the more you will have his mind, the more that you will see the world in the way that he does. Friends, we are married to Jesus. And he is conforming us into the righteous record that we already have in him. Now, how does this happen? For, for people like me, who love sin so much, how do we get conformed into this righteous image of Jesus? Well, it comes through a gift. Through the gift of our groom. It is a wonderful gift. It is a powerful gift. It is a transformational gift. See, when a normal couple gets married, the groom will give the bride a gift of a ring, right? But that gift is is to represent a greater gift, which is that the groom is giving himself to his bride. He promises to, to, to pay attention to her, to love her, to cherish her, to be there for her, to support her, to encourage her in any way he can. And when Christ gives us his his sign, his, his seal, Christ not only gives us all of those promises, but Christ actually promises to be inside of us. 
That is his gift. When Christ gives us him, he gives us him inside of us through his Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit empowers us to grow in righteousness. Verse 6 says, But now we are released from the law, having died to, the, to, to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Given the context, when Paul's talking about the old way, I don't think Paul's talking about the old way of the Old Testament, but the old way of the old man. When you were married to the law, when you were dead in your sins, that we do not try to be righteous by our old way, but according to the new way. And the new way is not by simply following the law, but being transformed by the Spirit of God in our lives. Let me give this illustration. Christmas is coming up, and kids, I'm guessing some of you will probably get remote control cars, right? And when you get that remote control car, um, there will be instructions, a written code, all right? And that written code will tell you how to care for the car, how to, how to operate the car, how to fix the car if it gets broken, right? Those instructions, that written code is, is a good thing, right? It's a necessary thing. It's a very helpful thing. But that those instructions provide no power to that car, do they? You can't take those instructions and wrap them around the car and say, go, right? Nothing's going to happen. What do you have to do to provide power to the car? You actually have to put something inside the car. You have to put power inside the car. You have to put batteries inside the car. In the same way, God has given us his written code of the Old Testament. And it's good instructions. It's helpful in showing us how we should live life, how how we help redeem the brokenness of this world, how we should live life uh, in love and respect for ourselves and in respect to others. The written code is good, just like the written code for those remote car, the remote control car, but it produces no power. It is the Spirit that produces power inside us. The Holy Spirit are the batteries for our soul that grow us, that give us the power to grow in righteousness. That's why in Galatians 5, it is not called the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the law, but it's called the fruit of the Spirit because it is the Spirit that empowers us to grow into the righteousness of Christ. And so just to recap, our need for righteousness, the law both exposes and arouses our unrighteousness, our means of righteousness, by getting remarried to Jesus and by dying to the law and living to Christ. And finally, our fruit of righteousness, fruit for God that is produced by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Let me end with this. Right now, we have four kids in basketball, okay? And I want to talk about this and thinking about what is our relationship to the law now? As Christians, if you trust in Christ, what is your relationship to the law? Right now, I have four kids in basketball. And it's fun to watch the evolution of the kids throughout basketball, all right? And it's interesting to see how, how their relationship to the rules, to the laws of the game changes, all right? When, when they first start at a young age, they're like taking the ball and running down the field and stiff-arming people, right? And then they're like chucking it up like a Hail Mary. They're running in and out of bounds. They don't care about the law at all. Okay, that's how, that's how some non-Christians treat the moral law. That's how some Christians treat the moral law. And it ain't fun for anybody, right? But, but then they become overly aware of the law. And so they dribble down the court and they pick up the ball and they're surrounded by people going in like this, right, defenders. And they have this deer in headlight looks and they're sitting there and they're thinking about the law, thinking about the rules of the game. Okay, I cannot dribble again. I cannot run with the ball, and I cannot push these people out of my way. And so they're stuck. They're like, they're so focused on on not messing up, on obeying the laws of the game. 
Again, I think this is something that both Christians and non-Christians do. We see this with non-Christians as, as they try to achieve their own righteousness by obeying the law. But we see this with Christians too, an accountability group. Their entire focus is on not messing up. Their entire focus is on obeying the laws of God. But then there is another, another evolution in, in the game of basketball in which the kids know the laws. The laws are good. But they're not focused on those laws. They're not focused on those rules. They're focused on the goal. They're focused on the hoop. You see, we are not called to stand and to focus on God's law. We're called to turn and to run to Jesus. That is where our focus is supposed to be. And so if you hear one thing today, let me just summarize the entire sermon this way. Love the law. Enjoy the law. Study the law. But stop focusing on the law. Focus on Jesus. And let the law be your guardrails to pursue your heavenly husband. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the law. We thank you that the law is right and good and wonderful and glorious and it exposes our sin and shows us our need for a Savior. Lord, I pray that, that, that we would not focus on the law, that we would love it, but that we would not focus on it, but that we would keep our eyes upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the, the heavenly husband that delights in us and in whom is the delight of our soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.